Hey, everybody, welcome to your favorite Creatively Conscious Mortality podcast. I'm your host, Ned Buskirk, your favorite host of a Creatively Conscious Mortality podcast. I just should strike that immediately because I don't know that that's true. A, I, I don't know that I'm your favorite host of a Creatively Conscious Mortality podcast. And B, I don't know that this is your favorite Creatively Conscious Mortality podcast. And really, um, you know, it's like when I tell my my son, like he's my favorite son in the world, or my daughter, you're my favorite daughter I've ever had. Um, you know, like they know already, they're on to me, that they're the only versions of those. But I do mean it from the like bottom of my heart. I guess if there is another Creatively Conscious Mortality podcast out there, can you let me know? Because I want to decide what my favorite is, theirs or ours. Uh, but I do care about ours a lot. I do care about it deeply. It is my favorite right now. Um, but low levels of competition. <laughs> Maybe after this episode is released, well, I'm just going to hear about a slew of them. It's a thing globally. Um, anyway, welcome to You're Going to Die, the podcast. Let's just kind of get right into it. This episode has a conversation I got to have with Wesley Keith Schultz, the guitarist and lead vocalist for the American folk rock band, The Lumineers. Uh, what can I say? I feel like we just cried a fair amount and laughed a good deal and talked a lot. And hopefully somehow it got edited down to the bits that is of worth to you. And I'm not going to spend a bunch of time here. I think I'm often fall into the trap of like, here's why this is special. You know what we need? Less of me doing that. Less of me talking at the beginning. More of us getting into this thing. Okay. I'll, I'll see you in the middle of the episode. I'll get to check in there. I'm not going to be gone. You'll hear me throughout. Um, and yeah, while I cried a lot, I sniffled a lot. Um, and I think uh, we cleaned that up enough so you won't hear me sniffling through the whole thing. Um, but I'm there. I'm with you. And uh, yeah, I'll check in about midway with with some of the things, you know, just to like say hi and, and remind you that I'm here with you because I am here with you. That's what I want you to know. I'm alive for this blip of time and maybe in some way, if I'm dead by now when you're listening to this, you can hear me as, as being a presence still in your life, in your little ear, my dead self. Um, but for now, I'm, I'm, as far as I know, I'm living and I'm here and uh, I'm with you. But I want to just get into this conversation with Wesley Schultz. Uh, who is a musician who grew up in New Jersey and moved to Denver back in 2009. And that's my understanding that, that in Denver is really where the Lumineers started doing what they've been doing. Um, he 
uses music to tell stories of his own life and and the lives of others, real and imaginary. And I would like to just particularly set you up with with part of the conversation, uh, an acknowledgement for Wesley's skill as a songwriter um, for telling the story of other people, real people. And there's a real intimate version of that that happens in this episode. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to just kind of highlight that now. Wesley's married to a badass mom and entrepreneur, Brandy Schultz, and they have two kiddos. And I think that's it. I think we just should get into it. Sometimes I'm like, do you need a story? You're like, what's going on with me? Here's this thing that happened. I am feeling that way. I did finish a cancer patient workshop uh, uh, just minutes ago. And I'm just like amazed like that I get to have conversations like the one we have for you today and, and that I get to be in these spaces. I was in this cancer patient workshop. It's music and writing. And there's these incredible musicians who I know now because of the cancer journey they've been on has led to the spaces I get to facilitate. And I got to close my eyes and listen to one of these guys sing a song to this group of men. And, um, and I just, it was crying, you know, just thinking about the power of that space and how no one in the world knew what was going on, but it was just us in this little Zoom call, all these guys who care deeply about each other, some of whom have never met in person and, um, and just feeling very present to the preciousness of that and, and the magic of it and the astounding nature of it in a way, like it really feels that way to me. And I'm, I'm emotional and I'm dramatic and I admit it, but I want to like say that, that when I feel that way, it matches what's going on, at least for me, <laughs> I guess, I guess sometimes that's all that matter, but I wanted to articulate that here and the way that it connects. When I got on the call with Wesley, you don't know how these conversations are going to go. I'd never met him before. We'd emailed some, and then we just end up having this two hour chat where we're both in tears and we're laughing and just listening and sharing stories. And, and then to get to have had that and have it mean so much to me and then get to share it with all of you. You've heard me say this before. I promised I wasn't going to do that. Here's why this is special, everybody. <laughs> okay, that's enough. Let's just do it. Uh, welcome, yes, to this episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast with... The Lumineers, Wesley Schultz. I, I think my dad died at 57. And mm -hmm. he, yeah, I think his death gave me urgency. I don't know mm -hmm. why. It gave me this idea that, I mean, I'm about to turn 40. And I think that alone has brought me a lot of, uh, courage to to maybe think about the next 17 years and if I get that and after that mm -hmm. what I want to what my what I want my life to look like because I think the worst thing you can do is create an environment where you put off things and you don't find that courage to sort of ask the universe or I guess fight for it in a way and feel entitled to fight for it in a way that you would if you felt like you had plenty more time. You know, mm. one of the things I'll, I'll bring it down more to a, a very light subject, which mm. is I come home from tour and I see a lot of my friends, my close friends that I probably see, I wouldn't say as much, but it would rival as much as I would see if I was home all the time. 
because mm-hmm. there's a sense of urgency. I'm going away and then in two weeks, let's get together. Let's have a meaningful beer or barbecue mm-hmm. or just hang with our kids or whatever that I, I cherish the fact that I'm forced to have that, that, uh, that urgency. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know how my dad would see it, but I, I felt like he likely put off a lot of things that he didn't realize he wasn't going to get to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, my parents were married for, I don't know, I don't know how many years in total, but around their 20th anniversary and for the next maybe seven years or so, they mm-hmm. went on an international trip with each other, just themselves mm-hmm. for the first time after 20 years, I think. It might have even been the 25th anniversary, if I'm not <laughs> wow. mistaken. And that's something where, again, like there was really no... My dad was such a family man. He was sort of like, oh, well, let's take it with the kids. That would be a crime not to. I'm always working. And and I, and I, so I've taken that lesson and done to try to do things with my wife, even if I'm working a lot, to bond mm-hmm. a little bit more because I could hear the regret in my mom and my dad about what took us so long. So mm-hmm. I think part of it is it can be really hard, but it creates a guiltless urgency to pursue things whether it's your own well-being or it's something professional or creative or whatever that you may may not find the guts to do because you're like, oh, I'll do it when the time is right. And that's the, that's the oldest story in the book. You know, I, I know <laughs> yeah. so many good musicians who gave up on it mm-hmm. because they were resigned to believe that it was supposed to happen on some timeline and I've always viewed it as a war of attrition. Like you just need to outlast everything in your way and mm-hmm. then something will break. And so I was about 30 when something broke for me. What um, was that? That was music. I got to play music full time at 30, but I what, waited. What happened at that moment? What shifted? We got signed. I got a management. <laughs> I, got a, yeah. I got a lawyer. Um, there are business yeah. things happen around it, you know, but I yeah. think sometimes all the preparation, the anonymous gigs I played, the writing I did that was not that good up until the point where it finally got good enough. Cutting your teeth, essentially. All that stuff done in anonymity is a great blessing. Like I can't even understand someone like a Billie Eilish who it seems like out of the gate was ready. Mm-hmm. Like I, I was never that. Yeah, um, so, but I, so young, right. I feel lucky that I was able to do that in the privacy of my own home, even though I wished I was in front of a bunch of people, they wouldn't like it <laughs> yeah, very all much. that time. <laughs> um, so yeah. I think, I think a big part of it is just, uh, it's just like, you know, finding a reason to hold on to whatever you want to do, because there, I, I know a lot of people, whether it's their relationship with their partner or their professional life or whatever, and they put off their own contentment um, and good gets in the way of great. So they kind of stay with something that's reliable and good, but it's never like that thing. Mm-hmm. And that always made me kind of grossed out. That always made me feel like nauseous. Mm-hmm. And I was much more comfortable suffering to try to get somewhere than I was, you know, sort of halfway suffering through mediocrity. My friend calls mm-hmm. it premium mediocrity. You know, <laughs> premium? Like, yeah. yeah, like when you go to Chili's, it's like, those wings <laughs> were pretty good. Um, you know, you get a blooming onion that, Outback, it's like, that's pretty good. But um, actually, that's actually premium. But there are, there are things that aren't. And I think, um, I think just, try, just holding out for the big thing 
that you really want. Mm. Even down to people getting married, you know, just to, just to feel secure in that way. I think I was lucky enough to meet somebody that ended up uh, feeling like I'm not a romantic in the sense that I feel like there's one person in the whole universe or world for you. I really don't think that. And my wife doesn't either, but I, cause we knew we could have, we're like both gypsies for, you know, she's, she's always moving around cause that's who she is. And, and I would have been that way cause of music. Mm-hmm. And I knew if I moved to M- Minneapolis, I'd probably find someone and she moved to Austin, she'd find someone. But I felt like the person I ended up with, I was so fortunate. And in the yeah. same way, other parts of my life and, you know, so a big part of that, I guess, looping it all back to mortality and dying and, and you sort of, sort of ticking clock is that the gift of that is that you don't have to beat yourself up for, you know, a lot of things that you might if you thought you had a hundred years mm-hmm. or more, 200 mm-hmm. years or whoever, whatever people think in their heads that's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, Walt Disney, you know. <laughs> yeah. What's, uh, what's your dad's name? Mike, Michael, Michael J. Schultz. Mm, how old Schultz. were you when he died? Michael James Schultz. Yeah. He was 57 and I was, it was 2007. I would have been 25, mm. uh, 24 at the time, actually. Soon to be 25. What happened? He had cancer uh, for about three or four years. Um, it's the same. It's strange because it's the same type of cancer that, his mother died from and then mm-hmm. of his brothers he probably spent the most time taking care of his mom he lived the closest mm-hmm. so he was commuting down from new jersey to maryland and every weekend and taking care of her she was a nurse so she kind of knew it was a, a little bit was going on and it was a cruel cruel way to die it was like they kept her alive for their own benefit it seemed like like yeah, a lot of suffering mm-hmm. yeah and and uh, and my dad so he took care of her and he, he told me later when he was, uh, when I got old enough to hear this, he said, I wanted out of the mercy in my heart to take a pillow and put it over her face mm-hmm. because I didn't understand why everybody thought it was such a good idea to let her mm-hmm. suffer like this. Mm-hmm. What's more humane. And uh, strangely enough, he got the same type of rare cancer mm. and went through a, a surgery that I think was supposed to take a few hours. It took 12 and and it destroyed his face and his part of his leg and uh he was on a feeding tube and all these things for years about a year of that of the three he was you know post cancer he was um he was kind of like not catatonic but in so much pain mm. and so fearful of pain medication he had seen opiates on the high level and what they've done to he was a psychologist and he had seen people's lives destroyed through drug yeah. addiction. And this was kind of like the pre-opiate crisis, but he already saw it happening. Mm-hmm. So he's very hesitant to go on Oxy or whatever else they were offering him. And finally he did. And it was the best two years after that. <laughs> it because he, because yeah. he was just a little bit. He was in pain. He, had, he, was, he was out of his pain and he was a little high and <laughs> he had a great sense of humor and, mm. um, it was great to have him back again for a little while. Mm, yeah. Um, but I thought that was kind of the cruelest part of the whole thing was that he was given the same hand as his mother and he already knew where it was headed. Yeah. And it was almost like he got the surgery to, to make everyone else happy. 
Yeah. Like who want who wants to get diced up like that? And right. Um, I mean, I I went and saw him in the hospital. My my family and I we went in to go see him, and we walked right by his, his where he was sitting because we didn't recognize him, and his face was so swollen it almost looked like Homer mm-hmm. Simpson. It was like mm-hmm. deformed because after the surgery of so much trauma of what they'd done that it ex- expanded really wide. And mm-hmm. I remember my uncle was there, who's like sort of like a uh, the closest uncle and like kind of a second father, you know, really close to the family and Uncle Gary and. His brother, to, yeah, uh, my mom's brother. But okay. my my mom's youngest. My mom's parents died when she was, uh, mom when she was eighteen, and dad when she was twenty eight. So she lost her parents young, and so my dad and her, my mom took care of her little brother, almost like partially like a kid at some point. Yeah, yeah. Um, so th- it was part of the family in a lot of ways, and he. So my dad can't speak. Obviously, he's all his face is all jacked up, and and but he can hear us, and so my mm-hmm. uncle is asking him questions and my dad is writing down the answers. And my uncle gets so rattled that my uncle just starts writing questions. And my dad writes down like, I can hear, I can't speak. But that's how much it was fucking up everyone to just see this person that was your Mm -hmm. hero, including my uncle. I think it was a hero to him too. Mm -hmm. Uh, This strong pillar, uh, you know, suffering and just getting mangled by the system of medicine I still, to this day, if it was given to me, I've talked to my wife about it. I'm like, I'm not, I would do anything to make you happy, but I would never do that for me. Like, that doesn't seem like, you ought to talk to any doctor who does that kind of work. They don't get it done to themselves. Yeah. And it's scary, so. Yeah, it is. And I'm so sorry for all that, that you had to live through that with him. But um, I wonder if you, could tell now like your dad had a declaration like you just made and he still ended up going through some of this stuff even after his mom his own mom seemed well, to I have think taught, it ate him, him up yeah go I ahead i don't know like i don't know what happened i don't know what happened between his mom dying and then that like mm-hmm. in terms of psychologically emotionally but i do know that he was someone who worried a lot mm. he was somebody who internalized whether it was all of his patients that he helped, tried to help um, in his psychological, being a psychologist in that practice, he was very gifted at it. Um, But that's a burden. That's a weight. I don't know if that was was something he took home with him, like a PTSD version of that or combination of that and his mother. He also, his, his family was crazy in the sense that his oldest brother went to Vietnam, uh, died almost immediately and then it just splintered the whole, fractured the whole family. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a lot going on, but I've always kind of felt like if I was trying to do something different and not in a disrespectful way, but trying to learn from my elders, it was like one of the things I took away was that there was a lot of, hmm, there was a lot of anxiety that I didn't see a need for. I know it's out of your control sometimes, but I was like, maybe he should have gotten counseling. Mm. Like I, I, I <laughs> yeah. you know, I get, I get help. I go talk to people and have a therapist and as much as I can, I try to have my counsel, my friends and have deep conversations because I didn't want to, I don't know how cancer works, but I can't help but think part of the recipe of it. It has to do with the levels of, uh, 
cortisol running through your veins right mm-hmm. at all times of the day mm-hmm. that just exacerbates whatever's already you're up against it breaks yeah. you down and mm-hmm. i think he was just dealing with that a whole lot throughout his life and he gave me a good life you know he gave me like a really a beautiful upbringing and i felt loved and mm. accepted and wanted and he gave me all those things but he also i just felt like he had the weight of the world on his shoulders and yeah for me i just for some reason, I, I feel a lot less of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's liberating. And maybe that was his gift to me. But it was hard yeah. to watch somebody like that who you knew helped everyone else. But it's like the cobbler's son has no shoes, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm that's not, in, wow. that, in yeah, this that's case, the co- in, in this case, the you, cobbler doesn't have shoes. But <laughs> The cobbler you know, doesn't have yeah. his own shoes. Yeah, I get it. Um, thanks for all that. Um mm. I'm wondering about him. Well, I, I really get this part of like the the psychological, even on impact on him, you know, doing that work. And even from where I sit, which is this regular conversation about, well, what do we do to take care of ourselves when we take care of so many? And really hearing that this is who your dad was in the world, like that, that he put so much effort and energy and spirit into others, helping others and that there's a risk there, you know? Um, you know, I really hear the strong connection. It's so simple, but I imagine your dad getting someone to have access to their feelings in a session, you know, crying like they hadn't. And you doing that to like all your listen, you know, (laughs) your people that follow you, like, that's what you do, you know? I mean, that's what you just described. I had a ride home from, uh, it was like a form. It was, I'm guessing here, but I think it was New Year's Eve because why else would we all be in a car together? But it was like me and my brother-in-law and then the whole family's in the back. And so we were the only ones we were keeping each other company, um, driving home from this family gathering that was a couple hours away from home. So everybody had been drinking, you know, so everybody's like passed out in the back, whatever. And he's, he's a green beret and he's like, kind of not grilling me, but genuinely and, you know, not softly asking me like, what are you up to? Why are you, what's the, what gives? Like, why are you doing this thing that it seems like a lot of people don't want you to do? (laughs) And that sounds weird to say, but when you worry your family, Mm -hmm. when I'm almost 30 and they start to worry about your own psychological health because you're pursuing something that no feedback loop has given you anything positive on. Um, <laughs> yeah, for the most part, yeah. Yeah, it's it's kind of like, why are you doing this? Yeah, you know, like just I'm curious, and I don't want some like canned answer. Tell me what what you're up to. And he's really religious, and I said, you know, you go. Why do you go to church? You go to church to feel. You don't. You don't want to feel alone. Yeah. You want to feel. Like you're not a piece of shit. You want to feel like there's other people out there. You're important. You're special in some way. But also that you feel love and you feel like love within you emanating out and back to you. And I said, like, what's crazy about music for me is that I don't find that in a church, but I find that in playing shows. I find that in writing music is that this exploration and the, the sort of more raw and mean you get about it it's actually kind of kind to yourself to to let that off Mm -hmm. kind of like 
when people go to confessional and <laughs> yeah. they they tell their worst things that they're so afraid to put out and give oxygen. And then once you put it out, it's like they wither away and are mm. out of your out of your hands. And there's plenty of times when I'm writing songs and I'm like, man, that's not a very flattering thing to say about myself or someone else, you know, and and but yet you feel lighter for it because you're being honest, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that if everyone was, there's plenty of shit that uh, we've all thought or done or felt. And, and I felt like music was the great equalizer with that. Um, and so, you know, for him to relate to it, it was powerful to me because he's like, at the end of the ride, he said, I, I understand and I, I, I get it. And whenever you need a place to crash, <laughs> you always have a place with us. Hell yeah. You know, when you're on the road and we will always support you, you know, not financially, but like, <laughs> Well, we he had made that back. clear. Yeah. Made that clear then. He just no, no money, he, but <laughs> he knew. He knew. I never asked. But like, yeah, right. It was just uh, he would have. I'm sure he's yeah. just such a great guy. But mm. you know, he understood that. And most of what most of what we talked about was was leadership and communication. So like leadership within a band, mm. and and ironically, the leader spends the most time thinking about everybody else. Mm-hmm. And you think of it like, oh, that must be nice. You call the shots. It's like the way you call shots, the only way you call shots is by running laps around people as far as how much you're thinking about the whole group yeah. and how this is going to work yeah. and how everybody's going to be okay. And, and the other part, communication. Communication, whether it's the live show, trying to set up a song the right way, uh, present, present a song in, in a way or even just learning later, you know, some of these songs, like I mentioned earlier, my dad's older brother dying in Vietnam. There's a song called Charlie Boy. I never set up. I never told any stories about it. I finally started saying something about it. And most people didn't even know that that was what it was about. Mm-hmm. Or Long Way From Home is about my dad dying of cancer. And, and it's kind of confessional about some of the things I did I wasn't too proud of around that time. And... Again, talking about that and communicating to an audience, telling them something that wasn't very flattering actually brought us all closer that night mm-hmm. and continues to. So I think maybe also bringing it back to leadership, one of the beautiful things about it is the more you reveal about yourself and are able to be a human being, the better leader you can be. The worst leaders are the ones that try to present perfect or try to present almost like a machine-like facade and no one believes it. No one likes it. There's no vulnerability. There's no courage in that. And I, that took me a while to learn because I always thought like mm. you're supposed to be strong at all times. Sure. It's like, no, it's okay to tell the group I'm really struggling right now. Mm-hmm. And I like, I want you to know that if I'm being short with you or if I seem upset, I'm not upset at you. I'm upset because all this, this stuff is going on and I'm just trying to stay ahead of that with you and let you know. Mm. you know, don't worry about me today. Hope, you know, hope I'm doing all right, but don't take it personally, my attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not toward you or your actions and things like that. So I got, I gleaned a lot from, from him and, and his wisdom and, and a lot of that. Yeah. And also just being forced to explain why I was doing this shit that, um, you know, my mom particularly was like, she's proud of me now. And she, but she was worried, man. She yeah. was just like, she didn't understand why 
all why do you got to make it harder you know you got like you got all this runway we raised you in the suburbs we we <laughs> we paid for your college and like all these advantages and i didn't want anything to do with it i just mm -hmm. like music and mm -hmm. so it's a strange strange vocation but i think this is a weird diatribe, but there's all these grants in like Germany and other places for artists. And like, I know we all need our help. You know, you look at all, Van Gogh, he had a bank, he was bankrolled. Like, remember Connie's like, who's my Medici family? Like you need actual funders of certain art. But I also yeah. think there's something about that rebel spirit of doing something no one thinks is a good idea in America that makes our art universal yeah man. that if someone was just paying me no matter how good or bad the song was i don't think i'd be as good like i mm -hmm. think part of that is we should embrace it is like it is important that what you do should connect mm -hmm. and, I, and, I, and comics get that more than anybody i hope you like talk to plenty of comics because they they have the darkest side and they've been through shit <laughs> yeah. and they can tell a joke and they know if it's good or not musicians have the luxury of saying oh i'm so deep they don't even get it Never heard a yeah. comic say that. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, thank you. Um, what's your, uh, you know, the time? I'm, I'm thinking of your, your dad, um, and and maybe the song you mentioned. But I'm wondering about that time first of all, and maybe how much you were with him. Um, but I want to, I want to also connect it to some of what you're sharing now, especially what you said about the urgency, you know, that you feel with life. And, and it seems like your dad's death really connects to that. You know, my mom died when I was 26. So there's both that similar feeling for me, um, really still all these years later, but also this shit that I do. It's like, I, I, I my mom, you know, wrote me a letter uh, when I was in LA and I wasn't even doing what I'm doing now, but what it, what she articulated in that was this, um, rem this like, why are you making it hard? Like, why are you doing the hard thing and the worry? And, um, mm -hmm. and, and, and so it's so wild these years later, I wish she was here like your mom to like see me on the other side of that commitment to what I care about. Um, but, I really feel a strong connection to that particular being in the world with you're going to die and what we do. Um, but to bring it back to my question, I'm just wondering about the journey of the urgency. Like I bet it, you know, it just emerges suddenly it's just how you're in the world, but I'm wondering if you can say more and connect more to that death and maybe by going back to when he died maybe find the like, when it, when did it shift? Like, was, was there suddenly clarity in the years that followed where you felt the urgency, uh, a definitive moment? Um, maybe I'll even, yeah, go ahead. <clears throat> I got, uh, it's I'm going to mention a letter cause my, I just got this framed. It's I, I'll just, I'll try to read it to you, but this is my dad. Oh my and gosh. Me. And I actually have that oh, buddy. love. <laughs> right here tattooed on my arm from the letter i got that like blown up a little bit but it says uh i, I haven't read this recently so I'm, it might it's a short letter i'll just read it really quick it says dear west well, take I your time to really wait wait sure <laughs> don't sure. Your, don't go quick read it, it says, uh take your time he had come to a show we played at this place called the bitter end in new york and i had mm -hmm. played a song about him getting sick 
Um, and it was called See You Another Day. Wait. Was- so you play this song at the show and he's there. Yeah, he, he was there. The show, yeah. And this was before I was still working at Starbucks and at restaurants and like, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, and he comes to the bitter end and he um, sees the show and he writes me this letter and he says, I want to let you know how great a time we had seeing you play. It was, it was really good. And then in parentheses, and so much improvement since the last time I saw you. I also felt really happy about the song you wrote and played regarding me. It really meant a lot to me. Thank you so much. And then he said, uh, you will be very successful, I think, with your music. You really do work hard. Love, Dad. And uh, the song wasn't very... I give him a lot of credit because the song was... Uh, the lyrics were like what I talked to you earlier about it. The, the opening line is cut your face in the name of medicine. Yeah, they did drug mm-hmm. you up. They locked us out. Let us in, let us in. We miss you, daddy. We want so badly. It's like, uh, oh, man, it, it's just a lot about like this surgery that, and all his body went through and, and then the medicine they put him on that took him away from us. And, and to have him hear that and be accepting of it and not be like, he was a pretty shy person. He didn't never want it to be the center of attention. Yeah. And so to have him be in the audience was hard. Um, but then to have him write that and then almost on the way out of his life say like, I think you're going to be successful at this. You work really hard at it. Yeah. Like, and you're getting better and I see it. Um, <laughs> yeah. It was like, you know, everything I loved about the way I was raised, it was like, you're not God's gift, you know, in how you do everything. But if you work hard, you you can, you can be something special. Mm. And I think that that's like such a gift because I've been around people. I'm pretty close with some people like this where all they need to hear is like how perfect they are, how special yeah. they are. And it's a kind of disability. Mm-hmm. And I think, what I was given as a gift was I love you and I will always love you, but you're not that special. But if you work hard, you can be special. Yeah. Yeah. been here i was in the conversation you've been listening to but you know in the beginning i said i'd 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 come back here and and just check in and i am checking in i'm checking in for good reason i wanted to thank all of you who answered the call to supporting our community fundraiser uh, for our 501c3 nonprofit, which we are worth noting that all our programming, our events, our workshops, our prison program, our hospice program, the podcast all falls under the umbrella of a 501c3 nonprofit, YG2D. And in April, we committed to raising more money than we've ever raised before with our community uh, fundraiser. And we did it. We raised over $25,000 thanks to all of you. And that's just... um, 
you know, worth saying to those of you that were able to help, um, but also to those of you, just everybody in general, really to say, I think that's what I feel. It's this, the, the, the money is so important, obviously, and we need it in this world to be active doing what, what we're made to do. But also, um, I really think about it this way. Like I think about the money as, as a vote, you know, a measurement for people's belief in us, people's belief and, and need for us, need for the things we offer, uh, the reliance community has on us. And I know some people are like, yeah, cool. You know, it seems cool. Like I've never done it or I did one thing years ago and I, I believe in you or I like you. You're a family member or a friend or God, just shut up. Stop asking. Here's money. Leave me alone. <laughs> All those versions of, of contributions. Um, but I also think a lot of times it's people saying like, yeah, you know, like you matter to me and I want you to keep being there. And so we, we hear that and thank you, everybody. And that's true for the podcast. More and more, we're feeling it. Like we look and see that you went into Spotify and clicked an extra star rating. Like I see those numbers slowly growing. We know when you do a review in Apple Podcasts, if you listen in Apple Podcasts and you click your star ratings and you add some words, we read every single one of the words. I see the stars. I know how many ratings we have. We pay attention. And so just know like, Doing any version of that, we hear it as a vote, like a, a, a measurement for, for the value of what we're offering. But please keep encouraging us. Um, and one big way to do that is to become a patron through our Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash YG2D. You can click the link in the show notes, just pop in there and you can give it as little as $1 a month. They have set up in Patreon now, the option to give a chunk of money for the year at a discount, uh, which seems kind of wild, like a discount contribution, but it's it works. It's just an easy way to be like, yep, I give this much a month and I give it all to you now. And it goes right into our nonprofit and it supports us doing more of this. So please uh, go to patreon.com. You can search for YG2D or search for You're Going to Die on Patreon find our page and, and become a patron. Thank you. All of you have been doing that. It's so sweet to see the numbers grow. And we are working on figuring out more ways to more regularly offer free content, special content that's just for our patrons. So keep your eyes peeled. Um, and then the simplest, easiest way, other than that you're already listening, which means so much, like whether I get to know for sure who you are or not, how many you are or not, I know you're out there. Thank you. I mean that, you. And um, if this episode is meaning anything to you, if any of the episodes hit you in the center of the chest, like, like it matters, then send it to a friend. Send it to a family member. Send it to someone who needs it. I, I really believe this about you're going to die. And really most of the things, right, that we do in the world that we care about passionately, there's an audience and I know some people see the name you're going to die. I know some people even come into the spaces and feel like this is too much or I don't really, I don't get it. And that's fine. But, but we're here for the people that need it and do understand it and want to talk and have conversations in these ways. So you know who those people are out there. You listen to an episode about suicide ideation or you listen to an episode about losing your partner or you listen to an episode about a musician turning grief into a gift of music. Like, you know the person that these episodes are perfect for. Send it to one of them. 
please. Nothing matters more than getting this thing out to the people that need it. And it's a way we frame what we do regularly. Like what matters most is the person that needs the grief workshop, the open mic event, the next podcast episode that they get it. And you help us make that happen. So thank you again from the bottom of our hearts, our little mortal beating hearts. Thank you. So this this next moment we have for you, if you've been listening to the show uh, for a while now, you know we try to create these moments in the middle of the episodes, blah, 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 to kind of settle you in, to honor our guests, give you something special to slow you down and maybe get you present to the fact that you're going to die. Uh, <laughs> it's not always overtly that confronting, but I, I do kind of feel like it's that way. Even when I do these little intros to the segment, I feel that. I feel this like me kind of almost like climbing into my skin and my muscles and my flesh and all the temporal ways I'm here, literally feeling like I'm pulling my body up around me like a sleeping bag, cozily cuddling up against your ear to whisper, hey, don't forget, you know, we're just in these bodies for a little while and who knows how we're out of them when this is all over. But at least we have this, this pressure Oops, sorry, that was getting to be so poetic. Let, let me try again. At least we have this, this precious, fragile, fleeting moment together. We get to share it. Thank God our lives overlapped. But, but anyway, I shared this moment. I felt like I had many of these moments with Wesley, this like being in our mortal bodies, just being with that fact and being emotional and feeling so much about it. And one way that Wesley described being that in, his, in the world, like actually through an action, is through this letter that he reads to his friends in these intimate moments, maybe at a dinner party. And the letter was written by Ted Hughes, uh, Sylvia Plath's husband, to their son, Nicholas. Um who was 24 years old at the time. And I asked Wesley to read the letter. And this was like already after almost two hours of us having so much like time to express emotion through our talking. And, and then we just sat and I muted myself and listened to him read this letter. And we wanted to share it with you scored with some music by producer Nick Jana. A letter from Ted Hughes to his young son written after his wife Sylvia Plath committed suicide. When I came to Lake Victoria, it was quite obvious to me that in some of the most important ways you are much more mature than I am. But in many other ways, obviously, you are still childish. How could you not be? You alone among mankind. It's something people don't discuss because it's something people are aware of only as general crisis of sense of inadequacy or helpless dependence or pointless loneliness or a sense of not having a strong enough ego to meet and master inner storms that come from an unexpected angle. But 
but not many people realize that that it is in fact the suffering of the child inside them. Everybody tries to protect this vulnerable two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight-year-old inside, and to acquire skills and aptitudes for dealing with the solutions that threaten to overwhelm it. So everyone develops a whole armor of a secondary self, the artificially constructed being that deals with the outer world and the crush of circumstances. And when we meet people, this is what we usually meet. And if this is the only part of them we meet, we're likely to get a rough time and to end up making no contact. But when you develop a strong divining sense for the child behind that armor, and you make your dealings and negotiations only with that child, you find that everyone becomes, in a way, like your own child. It's an intangible thing. But they too sense when that is what you are appealing to, and they respond with an impulse of real life. You get a little flash of the essential person, which is the child. Usually, that child is a wretchedly isolated, undeveloped little being. It's been protected by the efficient armor. It's never participated in life. It's never been exposed to living and to managing the person's affairs. It's never been given responsibility for taking the brunt, and it's never properly lived. That's how it is in almost everybody. And that little creature is sitting there behind the armor, peering through the slits. And in its own self, it is still unprotected, incapable, inexperienced. Every single person is vulnerable to unexpected defeat in this inmost emotional self. At every moment behind the most efficient, seeming adult exterior, the whole world of the person's childhood is being carefully held like a glass of water, bulging above the brim. And in fact, that child is the only real thing in them. It's their humanity, their real individuality, the one that can't understand why it was born and knows that it will have to die in no matter how crowded a place, quite on its own. That's the carrier of all living qualities. It's the center of all possible magic and revelation. What doesn't come out of that creature isn't worth having or it's worth having only as a tool for that creature to use and to turn account and make meaningful. So there it is, and the sense of itself. In that little being at its core, it is what it always was. But since that artificial secondary self took over the control of life around the age of eight and relegated the real, vulnerable, super-sensitive suffering self back into its nursery, it has lacked training this inner prisoner. And so, whenever life takes it by surprise and suddenly the artificial self of adaptations proves inadequate and fails to ward off invasion of raw experience, that inner self thrown into the front line, unprepared with all its childhood terrors around its ears. And yet, that's the moment it wants. That's where it comes alive. Even if only to be overwhelmed and bewildered and hurt. And that's where it calls up its own resources. Not artificial aids picked up outside, but real inner resources. Real biological ability to cope and to turn to account and to enjoy. That's the paradox. The only time people feel alive is when they're suffering. When something overwhelms their ordinary, careful armor and the naked child is flung out onto the world. That's why the things that are worse to undergo are the best to remember. 
but when that child gets buried away under their adaptive and protective skills, he becomes one of the walking dead, a monster. So when you realize you've gone a few weeks and haven't felt that awful struggle of your childish self, struggling to find itself out of its inadequacy and incompetence, you'll know you've gone some weeks without meeting new challenge and without growing, and that you've gone some weeks towards losing touch with yourself. The only calibration that counts is how much heart people invest, how much they ignore their fears of being hurt or caught out or humiliated. And the only thing people regret is that they didn't live bloody enough, that they didn't invest enough heart, didn't love enough. Nothing else really counts at all. Set up, set this up. Like what you're like, like I got a song I'm, idea or I'm yeah, singing the song and I start crying as I'm playing it. <laughs> oh and I'm like, I wanted like, to oh, know about these moments with you. And I'm yes. like, that's now I'm onto something. <laughs> yeah, totally. Right. That I always say like when you're, when the tears come and it's not only those, but when the tears come, it's like truth is close, you know, like that's oh, proximity to truth when we cry. The totally. The yeah. Goosebumps like too. Yeah. real raw emotion. <laughs> There's this line in uh, this song, leader of the landslide that is about, this it's about my mother-in-law and she's she was a homeless alcoholic for a little while and mm -hmm. she like i came into the situation as an outsider this was 2009 10 and then since then it's just been a roller coaster yeah um but i was trying to tell this story that was fair you know like hey I'm going to be as honest as I can, but I'm not going to leave you out of the story. Like I'm going yeah, to try to give you a point of view. Yes, right. Um, I'm going to try to honor you in this, but I'm not going to hold back, pull punches when it comes to like mm. emotion on either side, you know? Mm -hmm. And so there's this line where it says, um, uh, you blamed it all on your kids. We were young. We were innocent. You told me a lie. Fuck you for that. Fuck all your pride and fuck all your prayers. And I'm crying as I'm singing the fuck part because part of that is that you're so trained as a child of an alcoholic that I can see in my wife and her brothers to always put your emotions second to this person. You're codependent mm. and you're saying, that's the scientific word, but really what it is, is you're just saying my feelings matter less than yours. Yeah. And so... They just always, for in this in this line in this set of lines when they're when they're saying finally fuck you, it's like it hurts, it hurts them to say that more than it could ever hurt the person that they're yelling that mm -hmm. at. And I think that is the depth of like, mm -hmm. that's what's crazy about being real honest is that anyone who's lived that knows that. And anyone who, there are some people who haven't that will go, that's really weird. Why would you curse like that at someone that's suffering? Mm. They don't understand that that is actually like, you're cutting yourself way deeper mm -hmm. than you could ever cut that other person. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's the mystery of poetry and mm. poetry and song or whatever. Songwriting lyrics is that, I didn't know that. Some lyrics are written, some lyrics are sung, if that makes sense. Yeah. Kurt Cobain and Neil Young, I think sung most of their lyrics. I think other writers sat down and wrote. Leonard Cohen did both, but mm. a lot of it was written. And I think there's a difference. And when you hear that, you kind of get that that was a primal, it was like a dog 
how like wailing in the backyard. That's what that felt like singing mm-hmm. that. And that's just like primal. It's like in all of us. And every time I play that song live, that moment, I can see in the audience, there's this Ooh, smattering yeah. of people mm-hmm. throughout that are giving the finger and crying, but like mm-hmm. feel alive and they feel seen. And, and you know, every one of them loves that person mm-hmm. so much that they're saying that too. Yeah. They just resent being taken on this ride they never asked for. Right. They never signed up mm-hmm. for that ticket on that roller coaster. And, uh, um, I mean, I just really something I've been thinking about that, that really connects all the way back to some of the notes you sent about our conversation. You know, you didn't say much about what you wanted to talk about, but one of the things you, you made a point of noting is that you write these songs that are like both from your real lived experience and, and also like your ability to write songs from other perspectives and this like bridge you build with those songs to people. And I know that this particular example is real intimate because it's your mother-in-law, but still like there was a, there, there was the work you could do to turn a song out of knowing your, 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 your wife's experience and her siblings experience and to give that song to others as like a way for them to, to be seen. And so then to go back to this connection to your dad, like access that stuff that a song sometimes is the only way to draw it forth. You know, and it's a little less violent. I think there's something about songs that are like, yeah, I don't write somebody a letter with an accusing tone. It's <laughs> yeah, it's 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 this more indirect way of communicating that I think gets to the heart of it very quick mm-hmm. because it doesn't it disarms someone. Mm-hmm. Even if she listened to that song, she would go, yeah, wow. Well, I think even too, like you said, the body hit feeling at first too, right? Yeah. Like I just have this experience of your music, but a lot of music that I love where it's like you're, there's something happening that, that are, that's wordless at first. And then I'll, I'll take the time to like listen to the lyrics or read the lyrics. And then I'll just Mm -hmm. be like completely dumbfounded by how deeply the song connects when I just couldn't have told you any of the words and why, you know, they mattered. And and the other part of that equation, I think is, Maybe, uh, I don't know what the right word is to describe it. It's like there's something that happens, at least in that situation where you're entering as the partner of someone. I'm, I'm the husband at that point, And I'm realizing that in a strange way, I'm the only one who's really thinking this mm. way in these group of people that I love. And maybe their marriage partners are with me on that. Maybe they're not. But, but you're like one step removed. It's like you have enough room. It's like room. you're out of the cult. Mm-hmm. You're out of the cult. And yeah. the only way to like tell the story yeah. is from the outside in. It's like mm-hmm. you're too involved if you're trying to tell that story and you're already in, mm-hmm. in and you've been sort of brainwashed or you know trained to think a certain way. And I thought, because my wife and I talked about it a lot. And I said, before writing the record. And I said, you know, this is on my mind so much, but I feel like I don't want to speak for you and I don't want to take your story and just like vampire, take it and make it something. What's the right word to say? Like almost like prostitute it. Like I'm not trying to take advantage of it, but I think that there's, it's it's severely on my mind because it's affecting our relationship so much. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to 
catalyze that or something, trying to use that. And I also started to realize like, this isn't about taking someone else's story. It's about almost like a documentary where you're trying to really tell what's going on mm. in a full way. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe that has to come from an outsider because you're just too far into it. And mm. that's when I started finding like, okay, I think there's a way to do this that isn't using the situation and it could be healing and everything else. And I, it still wasn't easy for her siblings. I talked to them and throughout and after and it was hard for them. The song was hard for them. The whole album was about mm. their mom and, and the situation. And I think they had their own ideas about it, but there's, there's something about us. Uh, I forget. It, it's, it's some saying about like, it's better to lose once than twice in terms of like, at least when you go up, go up or down, you go, you lose or win based on something you, you felt and not some, you, you lose twice when you try to please someone else as you're, you know, I'm, I'm butchering it, but basically I think it would have been worse had I tried to really come at it from their exact angle. Yeah. I was trying to describe it in the most honest way I knew how. Yeah. And I think they sensed that even if they're like, Hey, I don't agree with that particular yeah. thing. And did they say that? Uh, not necessarily, but I think there was this idea that that was, that was like sort of their cat to let out of the bag mm, or something. Mm. And I was like, well, you know, part of what I've observed is that this whole thing's in our whole society is a giant secret. Yeah. And so I hear you, but I'm okay with you being upset with me mm. if that's what it is, because I'm not, I'm not being disingenuous when I put this out there. Mm -hmm. And I think even if it wasn't exactly how you want to say it, then you could tell your story. You mm -hmm. can write something about it. We all have social media. We all, you can start a podcast. I told Brady, start a podcast with your brothers. And mm. there's a lot of people that would connect with this. Mm -hmm. You can base it around the record and you can kind of tell your story. Um, but the music videos, I think, did a, a good job of sort of like telling the story visually. And anyway, it was, it was just like one of those things where there is a part of me that was like, oh, don't do that because you might hurt someone's feelings. Mm. And it was like, you know how many feelings have been hurt? <laughs> like just based upon this? Uh, yeah, uh, the, the real, like, the reality. Yeah, exactly. Stop? Yeah. Like, now we're, right. now we're going to say enough's enough. Like, and, let's just keep this maybe, a secret longer. Yeah, and maybe at the expense of like a lot of healing or at least like what we keep kind of touching on, like at least people, because that's the thing I really feel. And you know, it's so hard, right? You want to be respectful of people that want to keep it private. But there's so much of what I do is this like, no, it's, you need to put it out there. You know, that's mm -hmm. the place. And it's, pri and there can be like private context and intimate spaces for it. And a lot of ours are, you know, like the beginning open mic at Bureau Coach in San Francisco. It's like, we didn't record those occurrences and we don't still, but, but the point is this place where someone can, and I'm just thinking of those people, you know, fucking holding their middle finger up, listening to you play that song. And they should see that. Her mm -hmm. siblings should see mm -hmm. that. And they will. Like, it's been COVID, so they basically haven't been able to see it mm -hmm. in real life. But, yeah, it's, it was a, it was a definite, I give my wife a lot of credit because she was like, this is just as much your story. You married me. Yeah, and right. We're, we're like, tied at the hip in mm -hmm. a lot of ways emotionally. Like if she's going through, her mom would do crazy wild shit that would derail our life in mm -hmm. a lot of ways. We bought her a house. We had to evict her from the house. Um, we, she'd show up and be like, I live here now, drunk. 
I'd be like, what? Mm. I mean, this isn't something that you just get over that night. This is this is a lot of trauma over and over. She finally in a home where she's taken care of and and being helped in some ways for some of what she, I think she's suffering from dementia. We're not sure, but um, anyway, it's like, but I used to go, I forgot to mention this, but I, I used to go on stage every night before I went on stage, I would listen to one of two songs or both of them. Um, oh God, tell me what these are. <laughs> one of them was uh, this band Frightened Rabbit. And this yes. Song I wish, I was, oh. wish that I was sober. Oh. Yeah. And I would, I listen to that every time because I was, this is before I wrote that album mm. about her. Mm. I was thinking about her and it was the most emotional I could get mm. was just empathizing with her, but also feeling all those things that go with it, feeling angry that it was affecting mm. my life and my marriage and feeling sad for her and trying to understand desperately, but not feeling like you're ever going to quite get why is this person mm. ruining their life? And then taking everybody down with them and, mm. and just like, it must be bad because why else would you do it? Yeah. And she, in a single year, she visited the ER 96 times. And that's not even oh, including shit. places in Denver County where they don't even report that. Mm -hmm. So she was easily over a hundred, hundred separate ER visits. This is someone who's trying to kill themselves. She even got COVID. Nothing stops this woman. She's just like, her constitution is that mm. of an ox. You cannot be... Brandy and I were joking, my wife, that, you know, when Brandy applies for life insurance, she should be allowed to tell all the times her mom, like, tried to kill herself and couldn't. Like, that should be worth something, right? Like, she's been drinking this much for this long and she's still fine. Oh yeah, some kind like, of statistical she, proof. Don't I get, like, cheaper life insurance yeah. for that? Yeah. Um. But that yeah, song, it's a, it's I wish a, I was sober. You were able to like kind mm -hmm. of access her perspective from from Scott. You know yeah. His, his yeah that song. Oh. And then there's another one. Um, it's this AA Bondi song. Do you know who uh, AA uh -huh, Bondi is? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I saw him open for the Felice Brothers like years ago. Mm. But it's called Mightiest of Guns. And if you go to like on a Spotify, the it's the most popular track. But yeah, it's one of my favorites. Uh, of, of, there's there's a there's a line in there where he says. Um, uh, you can hear the and, and the murder boys are something playing in the, or hanging in the street. You can see them from the window in your seat. Um, yeah, and it's basically describing this really lonesome existence of like you're in this isolation, kind of without realizing it. It's voluntarily, mm. and you're just you're just in this case burning. You know, he says like all the world and the head of a pin. Yeah. Um, and he's talking about take the world and burn it in a spoon. Yeah. And I think it's heroin mm -hmm. or something like that where, but it's the same idea, this, this drug, this addiction that takes you out of the world and creates this lonesome existence. Mm -hmm. That's so sad. Mm -hmm. And I, so I listened to those two and I'd feel sad, but I would feel real, real true emotion access to that. And I needed yeah. to do that mm -hmm. because we started playing bigger rooms, you know, it'd be like, at one point it was, it's, it's now arenas and, it's, and now stadiums. And I think that there's a lack of intimacy there yeah. sometimes. How do you, and yeah. How so do you cultivate that? What I started to realize was that comes from the stage outward. So if I'm not connected and feeling that it's never going to give me that mm. I need to dictate that I need to give that mm -hmm. 
in order to receive it. It's almost like an echo. Yeah, like man. if I can give that, it will come back to me. Yeah, that's good. Um, so I started finding that that was really helpful. Mm-hmm. And then if I'm, and then if I'm feeling like I need to feel more cocky, I'll listen to Made in America. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> Made it in America, yeah. sweet baby Jesus. It's like so whatever uh, it takes, but but just trying to find your emotion within that. It's the same reason why people go to shows. Mm-hmm. I started to realize I'm responsible for that energy feeling. in some ways. And they're feeling. Yeah. Like I need to feel, mm-hmm. it can't just be this pantomime version of that. Mm. I need to be crying or on the verge of tears <laughs> yeah. going to stage. Oh, it's not totally. going to really, and it's not like method acting per se. I'm, I'm more saying it. I need to actually bring it forth. Yeah. Bring it forth to it's like a, be ready to access all of that. Mm while up there and and luckily a lot of the songs on the third album and even the fourth like are already simmering and bubbling over you know with this emotion that's so fresh mm. um but like on even on our it happens every album i think that's also why people gravitate toward it i think i mean we, i remember finishing cleopatra that song and weeping in the booth and they had cut my mic because they were so happy with their take Ugh. and I'm just crying mm. and I'm and I'm thinking someone's going to come in and like console me and no one heard it because mm. they had cut me off and I'm just like having this moment uh, of empathy towards this like person in the song mm. and then long way from home like I referenced earlier same thing happened except they heard at that time and just kind of like let me mm. figure it out mm. but it's like like recorded when you're it's not. I mean, I think they were like, "This is a private moment." It's <laughs> yeah, like they turned weird it, to look into but it. They so knew they you were emotional. Off mics, yeah, but they knew they mm. knew that there was something like right on the edge mm-hmm. there that you know you can hear in the takes. Yeah, and and that's why it sounds the way it does on the record. Mm. And you know, I think that that's the even though you're kind of like a wreck or a basket case in that moment, that's your superpower. Is that? Yeah. You're you're really that's right. You're able to access that. Yeah, that's, and that's right. Okay. That's your and that's superpower. Really good. Yeah, being yeah. real, being a wreck, and then somehow getting it out. You know, in a way you do. Like that is a superpower to me. Um, and and the way I relate is these years, especially in these events, where part of what my work is to is to get up and invite people to do what you're describing. You know, it's to get them to feel and then start connecting. And and a lot of times that's just like crying in, in front of everybody uh, as the mm-hmm. first invitation, the first doorway to go through. And, and I, I, you know, it's this idea in these big stadiums and arenas that it still works, but you just got to keep yeah. it real. You know, like you got to start there. That's the only place it can begin. You're not going to get it from, although I know there's moments I'm sure where you see someone in the audience crying, but like you're the start of that. They don't show up at the show probably in tears. And then there's the commute. Then there's the conversation of you being yeah. feeling that, and then the front rows, mo- probably usually where you see people like communicating back to you that emotion and the build of that conversation in a space like that. Yeah, that's yeah, incredible. It's, it's a it's heavy mm-hmm. and it's it's a joy. It's but it's it's like a if you went to a show and the the singer is upset with some sound issue or whatever else. It's often you. It's interesting how much that reverberates through. The crowd. Oh my like god! It, yeah, everything is everything is sort of dictated by the energy coming off the stage, yeah. and so you know I'm people. That's another thing. Like I think people think of it as like, oh, you must be doing all this 
fun stuff before the show. And it's like, I spend the whole day trying to get ready <laughs> yeah. for that moment. That quiet aloneness and usually. Be professional. Mm-hmm. You know, even from having a bad day, I'm not, not going to tell the audience, hey, I have a cold. Sorry, it's not as good. <laughs> Just seeing your ass off. Yeah, They'll yeah, know. Yeah. You know, and like, but there <laughs> are people decide. who would be like, this is really messed up, man. I have to sing today That's and I don't good. feel well. And it's, just like, yeah. it's just not, it's not, it's not an ideal world. So for me, trying to not only think that way, but surround myself with people who think that mm-hmm. way. You know, my, my buddy, Simon Felice, who's produced our last few records, he said he always gives a cheers to, to more great days. Yeah. You know, it, it's like very simple mm-hmm. because we're always, we're always kind of like, I'll be happy when I'll be happy when, and it's so cliche, but it's definitely true that there are people who literally put off all of it yeah. and then it's too late. Like, I don't know if my dad did with a lot of his stuff, but with the vacations he didn't take with my mom and things like that. Yeah. I mean, even simple stuff like my mom was like, yeah, finally your dad caved and allowed me to have a cleaning lady once a week. <laughs> He's like, if I knew that that would have made you this happy, I would have yeah, gotten you this decades before. 25 years ago. <laughs> yeah. You are so psyched about this cleaning lady. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so trying to trying to find those things yeah. in our life. Were you with your dad when he died? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, we were there. Um, it was a long night. He had, in the Long Way From Home song, it says, uh, more morphine, the last words you moaned. Mm-hmm. At last I was sure you weren't far away from home. Mm-hmm. It was like he was in so much pain that that's all he could say as a human being. And so I'm very thankful that they were able to put him on hopefully a happy trip out. Mm-hmm. Uh, not one of terror, mm-hmm. fear, and pain, mm-hmm. but just get him as high as you can get him. <laughs> yeah. Help this man leave the planet <laughs> yeah. in a, a good humane way. Unlike, yeah. yeah, because it was hard to watch how many years they put I him know, through I feel that. the ringer. Mm-hmm. And I resented it. Mm-hmm. And still do. Yeah. So I hope I never get it because... Man, that's going to be a conundrum of like, I saw what he went through mm-hmm. and what do I do? But I think my wife and I bonded when we first met because her dad died at 56, mine at 57, both of cancer. And it was like something oddly we connected mm-hmm. on. Um, and I think it affects us greatly mm-hmm. as far as like how we even parent our kids or our outlook on a lot of, a lot of things. Um, we're not... We're not gonna probably die with much in the bank. We're gonna have a good time. You know? like, let's just like, yeah. Let's just be generous as long with as our you friends agree. and family, yeah, and totally. have a good time. You That's know, great. like because this is like yeah. this is life is really really short, and so. Do you ever feel your dad visiting you in a show or in those simple moments with your kids or anything? Is that something you feel? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a. I have dreams sometimes mm. too. There's a there's a song "Keep Me in Your Heart" for a while, or "Keep Me in Your Heart," the Warren Zevon mm. song that I covered on our on my solo album. But his uh, his version is the best, and that's like the. I was. Somebody asked me. There were, there were. A f- Who were they? They had lost this person. I think they were their partner. So it was like they were contacting their 
partner's favorite band to ask what song should they play at the funeral for this mm. person? And I said, you can play. I named a couple songs that might be nice, but I said, if it was my funeral, I'd want to hear this song. And it's like, and I started listening to it. And I was looking at my son and I started crying. He was so young. And he just looked up at me and didn't have a care in the world. Was kind of confused. And just kept playing. And I realized like, that's such a beautiful <laughs> insulation. Mm. I'm just with him and he just wants me to watch him. And I'm just sort of quietly crying. Realizing that if I go away, maybe he can remember me for yeah. a while. <laughs> not, the, not forever. <laughs> just a uh -huh. little while. Yeah. It's a humble request. Yeah, that's all. What's the song again? That's what I like about yeah, the song. Yeah, what is it again? Keep Me In Your Heart? It's called Keep Me In Your Heart. Yeah, it's, Warren Zevon is a very, you'd probably know him well, but he's just a very sarcastic mm -hmm. writer most of the time. And this is uh, such a beautiful, heartfelt. Mm -hmm. um, he knows he's going to die. And he's he writes the song to his, his then wife and... Um, he says, sometimes when you're doing simple things around the house, keep me in your heart for a while. Um, <laughs> something about, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm with you like the buttons on your blouse. Keep me in your heart for a while. And it's like, so mm. beautiful. But um, you have to hear it the way he sings it. But he's on, he's on Letterman and he's the, He's the only time they've ever done this where he's the musical guest and the guest uh -huh. and he's the whole uh -huh. show. And, and at one point, David Letterman says, do you have any wisdom to bestow upon us? Because you're about to face your own mortality and all of us have varying amounts of time left. Do you have any wisdom? And he says, enjoy every sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> and Letterman just starts yeah. laughing and it's perfect. <laughs> and my friends opened up a sandwich shop and uh, the Catskills and that's no way. Yeah. printed in ginormous in huge writing it says enjoy every sandwich W. Z. Mm. Vaughn you know it's like but I think it's it's really mm -hmm. honest it's like really to mm -hmm. the point kind of what we're talking yeah. about but check out I, that song you know it'll, I will it'll change you know life. I will and if you hear my version at the end of it I put the uh, the sonogram like oh, the heartbeat of oh my daughter my at the end, at the very mm. end of it. It's beautiful. I do encourage you to go and check out, well, all the things, but check out the song Wesley mentions at the end of our conversation here, Keep Me In Your Heart by Warren Zevon. Check out both versions. They're both worth listening to. And if you want to find out more, connect more to Wesley, 
can find them on Instagram and we'll put the link in the show notes and you should go to lumineers.com, check out their tour that's happening through the States, I think, in the few months to come. And uh, all the other links will be in the show notes. But deep gratitude to Wesley for such a meaningful, moving conversation. They'll and be in San Francisco. So glad, what? Jeez. Sorry. <laughs> God, you snuck up on me there. They'll be in San Francisco in August. You should Sorry, come. Everybody, it's I'm going to be there. Jaina, the producer. <laughs> uh, I think I'm going to be there too. Are you going to be there? Yeah, man. Nice, bruh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Nick, uh, Nick Jaina, producer, sound engineer extraordinaire. Thanks for your good work on this episode. I know it, it, it's a special one for you. Can you tell us why? Oh, well, my very good friend Stealth is in the band The Lumineers, and that's how I got to know Wesley, who is honestly the nicest person of any level of renown that I've ever met, um, mm. which is all the more remarkable when you realize like how you know public and successful he's been, that he is still so kind, and I'm sure you got a sense of that in talking to him. Mm. Just such a sweet heart <laughs> totally <clears throat> so, i absolutely yeah. did get a sense for that um you know i mean you introduced us sort of as similar ilk and uh you know you don't know if that's going to be true but boy we sure dropped in it together and just another version of how special it is to have these conversations whether there was a podcast or not but boy it's nice to have uh the podcast give me opportunities like that so thank you for helping make that happen and for all the good work on this this ep it's definitely a lot easier to do with a podcast mm yeah for sure like <laughs> hey man i want to have a 2 hour conversation with you don't know you <laughs> not going to record it or share it with anyone <laughs> You down? <laughs> no. <laughs> Which is kind of weird because, like, that is special. It's special to have random conversations with people. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to go on and on about it, but boy, the opportunities this thing gives us to have special, meaningful, personal experiences. And I know you feel that way, that way just in your own writing work and music work in the world, like what it means to be a creative. And I think there's something that connects to like these enlivening experiences we get to have because of these endeavors. Um, so whatever, I don't care. Like I'll, I'll tag any project to giving me opportunities like, like this one for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nick, I wanted to ask you something. Mm -hmm. Um, if you could talk to yourself on your deathbed today, um, assuming that you're going to die and you're going to be on a deathbed and you're not just going to get just mashed by a bus or some other sudden death experience, that you'll have mostly a pain-free departure mm -hmm. um, and, and a little portal opened and big enough for your body, you could climb through it and sit with yourself at your deathbed. Mm -hmm. Um, what do you think that dying self would say about your life so far? And, and maybe especially, do you think, can you maybe access something that dying self would say, you need to do more of this or work on this? Anything that you think your dying self would tell you? It'd be, a lot of it would be tax related. Uh, as <laughs> Great. <laughs> but, but mostly to like, don't worry about that stuff. I mean, I don't know if I've mentioned this to you before, but my, my single greatest fear is that a letter is going to come in the mail tomorrow 
from the IRS oh, or, yeah. or like a parking agency. Oh that, yeah. That's going to be like, there has been a fine accruing <laughs> Yeah, that, that is now like $540,000. Yeah. It's, it's so big that <laughs> like you, you have to move back with your parents and yeah. you have to, you have to go back to your first uh, uh, temp job that you hated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like that's part of the, the restitution. So <laughs> yeah. It's so funny that, um, that would never happen, but, but the <laughs> letters do arrive in the mail that are just here. Here's what I get about this. And I relate to, and Chelsea actually th- this very week told me this about you. Cause she was like, yeah, Nick's like that too. We were talking about taxes and I was listening to her talk to me about things I should do with taxes and things that relate to the nonprofit about taxes. And, and I, and I said this, I said, you know what I'm really getting from you right now? Uh, and you're not even saying it out loud, but I can just feel it. And it's that it doesn't really fucking matter. Like, don't <laughs> worry about it. Yeah. You might have to pay more taxes if you don't put the right numbers <laughs> in the right line of the right form, but like, it's fine. And she was like, yeah, you know, like mostly that's true. And she followed that with like, but I get it. Like Nick's like that. And and it is this feeling I have that there's organizations and things that don't care about my heart <laughs> that are going to fucking come at me and make me do things that really ruin my life. You know? And, and I think we're also the same. I, I imagine in that we do things that don't make a lot of capitalistic sense. They're very heart driven. And a lot of time, <laughs> I, I think we spend thinking, is this a real thing? Because it doesn't ever really make profit. And, you know, like a lot of people, you know, it, it's weighing against like a lot of people say this changed my life. And also a lot of people are like, what do you do? And that's a thing. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> like yeah. you do that all the time and there's not another mm-hmm. like what? <laughs> yeah. um, that that thing is what my dying self I would love to hear my dying self just say like, dude, are you still doing it every day? Are you still doing all of these things that, that you love? Then, then they're real. Then you can let go of that feeling. Yeah. Like, is this real? Like it's not adding up to something I've lost thousands <laughs> of dollars at it. Like, yeah. Does it still count? Like I would love an older version of myself to just say like, it counts. Like you, you've, you've, you've done it for years. You're still doing it. You're going to do it up until the day that you die <laughs> on this bed and looking I'm like just me. just imagining that the guy, this, you on the deathbed is like, Nick, I got audited yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> I had a heart attack. I'm on my deathbed. It caught up to me. <laughs> Cancel everything. <laughs> Stop. Stop doing the creative endeavors. Get a real job. <laughs> Focus on your taxes. <laughs> he dies. Oh man, who knows? Portal who knows closes, and I'm like, say. oh man, <laughs> yeah. that's a bummer. Shit, I wish I didn't <laughs> talk to that guy. All right, thanks, thanks for uh, humoring me. Um, well, uh, I think I'm done. <laughs> I'm with done. I don't with want living to this anymore? <laughs> yeah, I'm done with all of it. I'm worried about taxes. Uh, what, well, I, I mean, do oh, you, oh, well, wait, wait. What about you? I mean, do you have a similar? I think just like to work on grammar and spelling more. You know, <laughs> that's probably. <laughs> wait, your older self would tell you now to work on grammar and spelling more. Yeah. No. Um. Yeah, probably that, and I think something similar. You know, it sounds like what we hope is that that dying version of us would say, 
you're doing good. You know, like keep doing it. Like I'm happy here. I'm happy for what we did with our life. Like just stay the course. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's what maybe not everybody wants to hear, but boy, would isn't that what we hope for ourselves in our last moments that we go that we think, oh yes. It's okay. Okay, what if thing. what if you okay, you get the magic portal. It's like you can open up and see yourself on your deathbed for five minutes and it goes and you open up and you look at yourself and he says that and like the portal's about to close and you're like, <laughs> man, you look good for being on your deathbed. And he's like, yeah, I'm all, I'm you from like two months from now. Bye. <laughs> and you're like, no. Not, that, not like we wouldn't notice that. <laughs> he'd have to tell it. He'd have to tell me like, you're going to get pretty sick in a few days. <laughs> <laughs> like that that that's the advice too is like you you have no time to change a thing so just <laughs> enjoy you're almost done you're looking around you're like there's no flying cars yet still he's like dude it's still 2022 <laughs> yeah. uh yeah it's june <laughs> it's, it's june of this year uh Wait, but he, we don't even make it to the lumineers show nope nope God, um Cool. I'm glad you're going to that show. Great. Can't wait. <laughs> um, all right. Okay. That's it, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Nick. Appreciate you. Yeah. And uh, thanks, everybody. Um, yeah. Usual reminders. Share this with your friends. Share this with one person in the world. Just go into your phone, hit the little share icon in whatever podcast app you got going on and send it off. Um just know, know that 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 makes a difference in uh, helping the podcast matter more for those who need it. And that's all. That's really like the heart of what we care about here. I've said it enough. That's all I got. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Thanks, Wesley. Thanks, Nick. Bye, everybody. Until next time, we'll see you in your ears. <laughs>